How's everybody doing? Good, good. It's great to see you this wonderful morning. Very, very hot, hot day. So get ready. It's going to be great. Or not. Um, so it's, you're nice and cool in here. Anybody too cold? Anybody? A little bit? Um, usually a couple of the ladies are going, yeah, but uh, that's okay. My name is Chris Pate. I'm the lead pastor here and very, very excited about continuing our series today in the book of John. How many of you guys have enjoyed John so far past couple of weeks? Yeah? All right, good. Standing O. Um, we love the book of John. In the book of John, Last week, uh, first week, uh, a couple weeks ago, G started us off doing an intro going through John 1. Um, this week, I'm doing um, also John 2. We're going to continue in John 2. Last week, we talked about Jesus turning water into wine. And today, we're going to go a little bit different route. Let me ask you this question, though. Do you remember growing up and hearing these words, wait until your dad gets home? Does anybody remember that? Okay, if you did not experience that, I'm questioning your childhood a little bit. Um, I'm not judging you, but yes, I am. And so there's something about that phrase that wreaks fear in the hearts of many, many children. And, and I would say a, a good, healthy fear, a reverential fear, because there's something when you hear that phrase where you go, Oh my gosh, what I'm gonna do. I can't tell you how many times I remember after I, you know, popped off to my mom, said something dumb, or did something dumb, I heard that phrase, you wait till your dad gets home. And I would find myself in bed in my room at 4 p.m., you know, exhausted from the day, just happened to hope, and it worked a good 50% of the time that my dad, I would hear the door creaking open, and a good 50% of the time, at least it would just close again, and everything was okay, and we were all good. Is that me, or is that somebody else? Um, and so, okay, that's somebody else. Good. Somebody's phone is ringing. God bless you. Uh, I remember having that fear, and so I would just tremble and be asleep, and that door would close, and I'd be like, okay, good. I made it, and then I'm just like, I guess I'll go to sleep. I don't know what I'm going to do, because I was so afraid, and then I, I remember my Mom got remarried when I was 12 years old, and we lived in an apartment at that time, and me and my sister, we had a two-bedroom apartment. Me and my sister were having to share a room. I was 12, and she was 14, and uh, I remember us talking late at night, and my stepdad yells from the other room, y'all be quiet, and I remember, because we didn't have the same relationship, it didn't carry the same authority for us at that time. We were just like, oh, whatever, Right? And it was just like, okay, I don't care. You, I don't know who you are. Like, I don't know that I can respect you yet with a level of authority enough to have that fear. In fact, I'm not really afraid of you. You ain't my dad. Kind of had that teenager mentality thing going on. It took some time, but after a relationship and getting to know him, I gained respect for him. And that level of respect then brought a good, healthy reverence and fear in my life. It's interesting because in the book of John, kind of the, the theme verse we used last week, and I want to use again this week, John 1, 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Last week, we talked about how 
Jesus, this picture that we have of Jesus, is often distorted, and we see the grace Jesus, and we saw that with the water turned to wine, just so much grace in his heart and life in order to reduce something so trivial, but in order to bring great joy and no shame as he's invited to this wedding. And yet, I think John then postures this other story right under the water to wine. And that's the story we're going to go in today to show he's not only full of grace, he's also, also full of truth and authority. And there's a level of reverence and fear we should have for Jesus. Let's dive in. John chapter 2. We're going to read all the way through this story. Then we're going to come back and talk about it. Join with me. John 2 verse 13 says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's go back. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. The Passover was the most well-known and celebrated feast of all of Israel. And many scholars would believe anywhere from 100 to 300,000 people would descend on this small city called Jerusalem. Jerusalem is placed on two mountains, Mount Zion as well as Mount Moriah. And on these mountains set this city on a hill 
with a temple, with walls, and then surrounding cities and areas. But that specific area would get one to 300,000 people coming. You think the Houston rodeo's bad. This is nuts. And in a small, small place. So people are coming from all over in order to celebrate what's called the Passover feast. Now, if you're familiar at all with Exodus, in Exodus, the angel of death, or the angel of God, went over and passed over the Israelites when they saw the blood on the doorpost and they took the firstborn, all that. This is the Passover. And they celebrate now with a feast with the lamb. They celebrate that God passed over them and gave them grace and ultimately delivered them from Egypt. And so every year they would celebrate this and they would descend and come to Jerusalem and feast and party and go through the ceremony and go through the motions. Now, part of the motions that they would go through is you would have to enter, go into the area, get an animal and enter into the temple for temple sacrifices. Let me show you a picture of the temple. This is Photoshop because this is not actually what it looks like today. You would have the temple here and you'd have the Dome of the Rock and different Muslim sites here. But this is a picture of Photoshop um, of what it would look like at the time. So we are facing west, going west. So it's like we're actually higher than Mount of Olives would be, but we're like hovering like Jesus, okay, like helicopter, looking over at the temple. And you would see the gates around and you would see the main temple area where you have like the column over here on the right, this red building where they would host and they would have all of like the birth certificates of the Israelites that were kept there. You'd have to come present your child, the newborn child. Jesus did this Christmas time and they would present their child and they would have to get the paperwork in order to have a census. They would know who was there. They would have the genealogies of who was there and that's where they hosted it. Up at the top right, you have the Antonia. I don't know if you could see it. There's like a corner top right up here where the, the Roman guard and the army would come and they would particularly, especially at these feasts, come with a lot of armored soldiers ready to kind of squelch any kind of uh, even thought of taking over or doing something different with all of these Israelites coming to worship God and bring their sacrifices. So Jesus would have come into this place. He would have entered into the temple, which is the top part. He would have come in and he would have seen as we see on here, people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, the reason why this was a problem was not because they had animals in the temple. In fact, that was a known thing because there needed to be an atonement or a covering of sacrifice for the covering, the atonement of the sins of the people. And this was part of what they would do. This was part of just their religious life that they had, that they had to come and atone for the sin and cover themselves because what it represented was two things, the grace and love of God as well as the truth and order of God. Let me explain. You see the truth of God in the fact that I've got to get an animal. Typically, they would buy them outside of the temple area. They would have oxen and sheep, and they would have to, according to the law, bring in this animal. They would purchase it. It would have to be without blemish, have certain marks on it, an ADA approved or whatever you would want to call it. And they would have to get it, and they would have to take it inside, and they'd be walking up into the temple 
And they would have this animal, and they would be thinking on this walk. They would be remembering. They would be repenting as they're presenting this animal ultimately to be sacrificed and cut. Now, to us, it's a mystery, and it's this kind of weird, barbaric thing. But I want you to understand, when we break relationship with God, or much less one another, there is a death that happens in that relationship. Right? If you cheated on your spouse, there's a death that happens to that relationship. If you lie to the person that you work with, there's a type of death that happens in that relationship. And this symbolizes what is actually going on that I am having to bring in this animal and I'm going to have to kill it because we have broken relationship with God and there is a sacrifice to be made because death has happened. Now, we see the truth of that and we go, gosh, that's, that's really heavy. And God wants us to realize the death of the relationship, that we've had an affair against him. We've taken his land, his creation, stolen, killed, hurt other people in our selfishness and caused death and decay. So now we have to see the image of that. And they would have to go through this process. Now, that was just the truth of it. That would be sober to each person. Now, the grace part is that because we have sinned against God and destroyed his land and everything that he's created, we've worshiped the created things rather than the creator. Because we did that, God could have easily said, I'm done with you guys. I'm out of here. Instead, he said, I'm going to make a way for covering and atonement through this animal. And this starts in Genesis. When Adam and Eve fall and God has to clothe them, something had to die to clothe them. We've talked about this in our church. And so now it's not only the truth into some kind of grotesque act, but now it's the grace of God that is allowing something to bring me back into relationship with him. So you have grace and you have truth. So what's the problem? Why is Jesus so mad and irate? Well, here's the reason. Not because there's animals. Well, it was because they're animals, but because of the location of the animals. So if you are showing up to the temple empty-handed, and you walk up, and you go up the steps, and you get into the temple, and you arrive, and there's money changers there because you have foreign money, and you've got to exchange it in order to be able to buy this animal in order to sacrifice. Everything's in the temple. Jesus walks in, and instead of the place being a place of sol- solemn reverence or even rejoicing for what God is doing in atoning for our sins. Instead, it's just crazy. And he says, you've turned this place into an emporium, the Greek says, into a market. And he says, he says, this is not what this area was supposed to be. You're supposed to buy the animal somewhere else and take the time to think and to remember and to repent and then to rejoice in God making a way. Not to show up to the temple, grab your thing, take two steps, sacrifice it, and leave. It was a mechanical type of religiosity. I'm going through the motions. And Jesus is irate because he says, this was not the point. You're missing the point. And he's so irate. I love it. He says, and making a whip of cords. You imagine, you know, he's like a, a mad old grandma up there, like just gets up to the temple and he's just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get these. And here's, the, here's an example of the cords he made. Go to this next picture. The word cords is, is not accurate. It's actually a reed or rashes. 
and it's a plant that's like this, and he would have made this kind of faux whip. So don't think Indiana Jones are like, right? Where all the people are like, oh my gosh, Jesus, right? Like freaking out. This is a, a, a whip, a man-made whip, like out of rashes, out of reeds. So it would, would kind of be flimsy. It wouldn't really hurt. And it wasn't the pain that drove them out, but the authority that he carried that freaked them out and made them run. And I, I love this concept because he's not trying to be, bring pain through some other substance, but the authority as God coming into his house, being mad that it's out of order and that people are just going through the motions of religiosity instead of the relationship that God wants. So much so other gospels would say he declared to them, my father's house is a house of prayer for all the nations and you've made it a den of thieves. Oftentimes we read this and we think, well, this means don't sell things in the church, which by the way, we're not selling anything. Any books we sell, it's not for profit. We're just trying to, you know, break even. But th that is such a surface level idea of what this is. It's not about what you're doing. It's about the motive of your heart and why you're doing it. That's why scripture would say all things are lawful, but not everything's beneficial. And we get so concerned about the what instead of about the what's going on here. And that's what Jesus sees. And he's irate. And he's mad. And he comes in and he gets them out. In verse 16 he says, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now afterwards, John 2 verse 18 the Jews come up to him, the people come up to him and say this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? What they're trying to say is, it, it wasn't the whip that scared us out. And in fact, you did nothing wrong because, see, they all understood that you're not supposed to have the animals and the money changers up in the temple. It was not the right place. But just like you and me do, we give a little bit away here and a little bit away here. And the next thing we know, we are overcrowded with sin. And people know what's going on, but it's a touchy subject. And you have rationalized everything so much to the point where you're just like, all right, let's just do it. And Jesus comes in and says, that's not how I work. You see, you invited me to the wedding and I brought wine, but this is my house. I don't need an invitation. And I'm not bringing wine, I'm bringing a whip. And we have the grace of Jesus and the wine bringer, and we have the truth of Jesus in the whip bringer, and that's Jesus. See, our culture wants to paint a picture that Jesus is just one or the other. And mostly, we like the shiny, happy people holding hands Jesus that tells me I can do whatever I want and God just really loves me. But listen, remember, love sometimes and a lot of times tells me the things that I need, not just gives me the things I want. So Jesus brings wine, but he brings a whip too because he comes in an authority figure, this is my house, you've made it a den of thieves. And the reason why they didn't take him right away 
and kill him is because they all knew he was right. He did the right thing. He was bold enough to do what none of us would do. So the Jews come to him and they say, hey, you, you, there's some kind of authority. There's some kind of zeal that you are carrying that no one else had the passion to do this and clean house. Show us a sign. Like maybe, maybe you are the Messiah because we know they knew the scriptures. Zeal would consume him for the house. They understood this. Show us a sign and look at his response. Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He didn't say, all right, here we go. Water, wine. Here we go. Healing. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, they took him, not metaphorically, not spiritually, took him literally. Verse 20, the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days and John kind of takes us out. And he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. What's it saying here? He's not talking about the temple construct. And they would be right, to, if they took him literally, to be irate now at him because you understand their whole life revolved around the temple. The very holy presence of God was at the temple. Everything was about converging and ultimately going to the atonement for the temple and God blessing them and creating something out of them. And the Messiah is going to be zealous for this temple. And he says, destroy it. Only an owner, only God can talk about a temple like this, the most religious holy site for the Jews. Only God can speak like this. And they understood it. What, what are you talking about? And the disciples later realized he's talking about his own body. And this is why he was so zealous. Because this was a temporary temple, but Jesus' body is the temple. Later, Paul would say, don't you realize, Christian, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he resides in you. Don't you get it? Don't you understand what it is that Jesus has done in destroying his temple and raising up? And he says this, here's the sign I'll show you that I'm God, that I have the authority to go in and wreck shop in the temple because I am the temple. Because I am God. I own this place. This is mine. That's my zeal. And again, they took him literally later. The disciples said, oh, I get it. Now let's keep going. John 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. So people started going, okay, maybe he is the Messiah. He's got zeal and he's doing things that, that you know, the other pastors wouldn't do. They believed in his name when? When they saw the signs he was doing. I love this. But Jesus... If you don't have in your life a but Jesus every once in a while, you're probably serving yourself. Like if, if, if your idea of Christianity and God is, you talk to, you know, you talk to me and you're like, man, God's really speaking to me and God's just telling me how much he loves me and how much he's telling me I should do this and go, and, and it never contradicts your will. I think maybe you're God and not Jesus. Because Jesus 
brings with him, yes, blessing, yes, encouragement, yes, joy and wine, but also a but sometimes. Sometimes a, eh, because see, this is my house. And if you want me to bring the wine, you've got to be ready for me to also bring the whip. It's a both and Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. That's you and me. Thanks, Jesus. And needed no one to bear witness about man, how, how men act and are and what's going on in their hearts. Why? For he knew himself what was in man. Now, it's easy to read this and go, Jesus didn't trust anybody. What kind of person is that? You know those people that don't trust people? They're just bitter and frustrated and angry. It doesn't say that. It says he didn't entrust people. There's a difference between giving some trust and entrusting. Entrusting is putting all of your hope and all of your desires in that person so much so that if they do something wrong, you're devastated and it kills you and it destroys you. That's entrust. Jesus obviously trusted people. Why? The dude left, right? Sorry, I called Jesus a dude. The guy, the God man left. He, he, he trusted them enough to go, I'm out of here. Y'all take it from here. Trust me. Trust my spirit. Let's go. He would give them ministry and say, you go do it. You go do it. You feed them. He trusted them, but he did not entrust them. This is a good point for us to think about. Do you entrust your spouse? You might be in big trouble. Do you entrust your kids? Do you entrust your job? Do you entrust your gifts? Do you entrust something? Do you give something all of your weight and your hope and desire? So much so, if that thing fell apart, so would you. And Jesus says, no one can handle that but God. I will not entrust myself to a fallible, leaky vessel because I'm putting my trust ultimately in God. He's the one I'm living for. He's my life. And that way, I can give you enough trust that if you hurt me, I'm not broken. Oh, this is the way to live. This is powerful. And, and it says he knew what was in their heart. Well, what's in our heart that's so wrong, right? They're going, you're the Messiah. But see, they had an idea, just like we a lot of times have an idea of what God is like or what a Messiah is like. But mostly, we still have our own grid and our own worldview that we just insert Jesus into. Let me give you an example. Pull, pull up my creation, fall, redemption, renewal. We all have a worldview or a narrative, a story that we're living by, that guides our life pushes us into our pursuits of joy. And Jesus knows this is in man. Now, if you read the biblical story, this is kind of a parsing out the biblical story and giving you a framework for what all of life is built around. First of all, a creation, Genesis 1. God creates things good, not perfect, but good. Creates man, things are going well, be fruitful, multiply, like he's enjoying all of this, he's sharing it. And then the fall comes. God is the creator. We are the creation. And it starts good, but the fall comes. What's the fall? Not just man 
not getting his way, but choosing a different way, ultimately bringing sin like a virus into our culture that plagues and brings death and destruction because of selfish intention and creating our own morality. That's not good, God. This is good. That's bad. Not that. We create our own lens and we have a fall. Therefore, God has to have a redemption or salvation plan. And the rest of Scripture from Genesis 3 on is the plan of redemption. And this is why the Jews are looking for the Messiah. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's him. And, and it's got to be Jesus. Like we're believing because he's going to bring this renewal. And renewal to them was conquering all the land and having their cake and eating it too and having it right. So they had this framework. Ultimately, we know redemption only came through Christ. He's going, my temple will be destroyed but raised again. And one day, listen, we live in redemption. This is where we live right here. We get glimpses of renewal or restoration of what the new earth and new heaven's going to be like. And I, mean, I say every time someone's healed, God answers a prayer, we get that glimpse of that renewal. And it's beautiful. But we live here where we're in the now but not yet time. One day, man, we're looking forward to that renewal. I mean, I'm going to have a body. It's going to be amazing. You're going to be like, who is that? That's Chris Pate. <laughs> right? A spiritual body. Things are going to be, we're going to be working and still serving God and doing things and enjoying life. It's going to be amazing. But all for the glory of God and in the presence of God. That's the story of the Bible. It's an epic tale. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful narrative. And let me tell you, it's a narrative you still, even in postmodern, post-Christian, Western culture in America, you still have this narrative. You just replace the story. And I replace the story so quickly. And this is why Jesus says, I can't entrust them. Because they have this framework, but they have the wrong ultimate idea. Let me, let me give you an example. In our secular, secular just simply means progress, wanting progress without the presence of God, wanting the kingdom of God without a king. Ultimately, it's just, I want what God, I want ultimately great and goodness, but I don't want a relationship with anybody or entity outside of it. So I'm going to pursue it and get it on my own. With a secular framework like this, we still have this. We say, okay, creation. So what's creation? Creation is my innocence my childlike self, my inner child, the person, how I just grew up, I was just a good kid. And, and then what happened? The fall came. What's the fall? The authority structures and the figures and the external identities that are placed on me from culture or from authority. The things I don't want to do or that are difficult for me to do, those are holding me down. Those are the sin in my life. Not taking on my own personal responsibility. It's the outside things pressuring me and it killed my inner child. It's the trauma that happened that is legitimate and I'm not dissing it by any means. But it's the trauma that now defines you. And if it wasn't for that trauma, you would be fine. That's the fall. That's the sin. So what's my salvation? What's my redemption? Whatever gets me to renewal, and renewal for me is pleasure happiness defined as pleasure, which is a horrible term for pleasure, but in a very hedonistic, individualistic consumer culture, the culture designs us to where they want you to be discontent. Why? Because they promise you a renewal. If you get that new apple, you will feel so much better about yourself. 
you will get back to your innocence. If you just take another drink, get another thing, go on that new vacation, that escapade, that's what you need. See, the problem is everybody is pulling you down, and you just need to get back to your innocence. The way you get back to your innocence then and your redemption and your salvation is avoiding pain at all costs. And anything that doesn't bring pleasure, even difficulty, and especially adulting. Responsibility placed on me, I've got to get rid of that because I'm my own individual person. See, we use this framework, but our end goal is wrong. And Jesus knew that and would not entrust his heart to man because he knew they were putting him in the capacity, but in the wrong way. As if Jesus' job is to give me pleasure and make me happy. See, in this framework, holiness and discipleship in the redemption phase is avoiding all of those pains at all costs. And see, we bring that, we'll even bring that into the church. Like, we'll go, man, I love Jesus. Man, I like City Life Church. Like, people, people are amazing. This is awesome. Like, I'm experiencing God. And then seven weeks later, you go, man, there's really annoying people there. <laughs> I got to avoid that. Because I, I, I thought this was like, heaven. I thought my heaven was everything works out all the time and it's good. I thought my goal with Jesus now sitting beside me, not ruling me, but helping me pursue pleasure. How many people do you know turn away from the gospel even after hearing it because they have the wrong framework? This is Jesus saying, I don't entrust my heart to men. That includes women. Sorry, ladies. Why? Because you have the wrong picture of who Jesus is. You love the wine-bringing Jesus. And I say you. I'm including myself. But man, that whip Jesus. That discipline Jesus. That Jesus, when things don't go my way, or he's coming into my temple, and he's telling me no, Nah, I'm not into that guy. So maybe I'll pursue a different thing or a different religion. There's a revisionist history right now in our culture and our world that the church is dying, that, that we're moving beyond Christianity or even religion. And that's, that's been kind of a rhetoric and a narrative for a long time. And I'm telling you, just like the tide, it's easy to see, man, where's God? Is he moving in this area or whatever? And the tide is, has gone out and we go, well, maybe the tide needs, the tide of secularism is coming in and we're going to do things our own way and we're going to be our own thing and we're going to progress. We don't need the presence of God. We're going to get what we need without all of that stuff. And yet, every time throughout history, it's not like Christianity like had its moment and now it's just dead. But there's always been a tied in and a tied out. Tied in and a tied, if you look at history, tied in, tied out. Some would call it revival. Some would call it awakening. And I'm telling you, I feel like and I know we are on the verge of an awakening. Why? Because people are going, I'm seeking pleasure at all costs. And now I'm just in prison and addicted to myself my own comforts and my own life and I'm not getting better I feel like I'm getting worse and worse and more and more chained down with this mentality with this worldview. and I'll try Jesus maybe if that but uh, which Jesus is it is it the one full of grace 
Is it the one full of truth? Because John's depicting a Jesus full of grace and truth. That's the real Jesus. And that's the one he wants us to see so that we get our worldview right. Let me give you a final scripture as we close. Mark 8, 34 and 35 says this. And calling the crowd to him, that's Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Not go find yourself and seek out who you are, but deny yourself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus says, see, you're wanting life, but your pursuit in it is pursuing more and more of yourself and your own pleasures. And you'll never get it that way because that was the problem with the fall in the first place. Doing things my own way. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? I'm not even doing things my way. I only do what the Father tells me. And ultimately, I will go to a cross. I'm going to be whipped by a God that's also bringing wine. I'm going to be whipped and scourged because I'm going to show you when you actually give your life and you live for something else, you find life. But when you scourge on your own life, there's only death. Jesus comes in and says, you know how I can sit here and tell you that I am the Lord, the master of not only the ceremony, but also the temple? It's because I'll be destroyed, but I will be raised again. I want to trust someone like that, not me. I know me. This is why in our church, we don't say, follow Chris, Chris Pate Ministries. God forbid, follow me as I follow him. Because we're trying to be like him, not him like us. This is called discipleship. This now leads into our own holiness where we're willing to say, God, come in and just decrease things around me. Whip the, the money changers out, whip the animals out in me because I want to be a person sold out to you in a relationship. And I will receive you as wine and a whip. Once you stand to your feet, we're going to worship together. And I want to encourage you. What do you do with a message like this? Ultimately, it's a message of who's, who's your Jesus? Who are you following? It's a message of repentance and ultimately, God, I, discipleship. I want to follow your way. It's a message of ideology and changing the way we think and approach God and his word and allowing him to actually be God, not just something that allows us to get the things that we want. We're going to sing this Jesus be the center of it all. And that's my prayer that some of you will rededicate that to, you, to the Lord today. Some of you today will go, man, I don't know what kind of Jesus, but I want that guy who loves me enough to say no correct as well as bless me let's pray father we love you and we thank you and we ask for you to be the sinner we ask god for you to come 
challenge our heart and change our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.